Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. How to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free. Self-actualization. Now, it's not always what we think it is. I realized in the opening interviews of this show that I have been interviewing quite a lot of people who have been doing big things in a very noticeable sort of a way in the world, which is wonderful. But I, I reflected on this and I realized that there's an millions, probably billions, hopefully billions of people out there living self-actualized lives who you would never hear of the everyday heroes, the unsung heroes, but not just heroes, the, 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 the people who just simply are self-actualized and they're not doing it in a way that is in front of audiences. Not that there's anything wrong with doing it in front of audiences, but it means that we can sometimes miss the meaning of what self-actualization is because self-actualization is actually a very personal process. What everyone's own success is is very, very much seen through their prism, their lens. And so that made me, as I, as I was having this thought, I rather synchronistically got a WhatsApp from a, a very dear old friend of mine, Jill Cohen. And I'm going to let Jill Cohen tell you about her life. But suffice to say, before we begin, I would say that Jill Cohen is one of the most self-actualized people I know. She's not famous. She's not public, yet she completely, completely lives life on her own terms very successfully and in a way that I know has inspired pretty much everyone who's come into contact with her and has healed actually many people who've come into contact with her, but has also reached out into the wider world and had quite a lot of ripple effect influence just without fanfare. And I think that there, if you're listening and you've been thinking, yeah, you know, Rue, you're saying the, the, all these very successful people that you're, you're interviewing is awesome. What about the ordinary people who are just out there self-actualizing, you know, and they're so busy self-actualizing that they haven't got time to make websites about it or whatever. What about that? And I, I think that's a very valid point. So you don't have to be a celebrity to be self-actualized. Quite the opposite, in fact. So Jill Cohen, welcome to Live Free, Ride Free. Thank you so much for coming on. Welcome. Thank you, Rupert. And so honored to be here with you. Your abilities and skills of bringing out the true nature in people is just mind-blowing. And I'm so honored to be here to be peeled back. I'm so curious to see who shows up. <laughs> well, you do it. It's a great honor. Before, what I, what I really want to ask you, so listeners go, who are you, Jill Cohen? Mm -hmm. I'm a little chickpea, just being cooked, ripened in this life. I am here at present. I was born to two parents that 
deeply, deeply loved me, grandparents that just adored me and thought the world of me. And that gave me such fertile soil to grow in, possibility, being seen, being loved, and just saw this life as such an opportunity to serve, to love, to give, to grow, to nourish, nurture, and be part of and dance fully, fully, fully expressed. So many, I feel like I've just been given this magical lifetime. I feel like an old soul. I feel like I've lived for so many different cultures and ways of life. I feel like I can relate to every grain of sand on the planet. So tell us. This lifetime just. Tell us, tell us what you do. What do you do? So I, right now, in this present time, I have been for the past 40 some odd years, started touching people. I began, oh, I was 13, working with clay touching clay and could do it like like right away. And then as that grew over the years, I just saw that the clay and the process of clay becoming a pot and the human element that came into it and just the manifestation and the alchemy of the elements coming together creates just this amazing vessel that holds life. Did pottery for many years. I was living in Southern California. I had a studio with my husband and my two little babies. And we were given notice that we had to move. <clears throat> so we moved and didn't want to start up a whole new pottery. So I began touching people. thought, this is such a natural progression. It's not much different. And, and there's more interaction. The clay, you're dirty, you're alone in the studio. And it's awesome. I loved it. But it was like there was so much more richness in working with the human added to all the other elements. And started touching people and built a practice. People were requesting my touch. So I thought, okay, this is my new livelihood. It was just like given to me. And started to see how the emotions, our mental attitudes, our backgrounds were all in that tissue, that fiber, that fabric. And after a few years, I was just, teachers just showed up for me. It's just, I, I kind of have to close my eyes. I don't have too many because I'm, I've been not much hungry, but just um, fertile soil for this little bee to grow in. Um, and I've just found beautiful teachers to help me learn um, direct ways of getting to the core, what's at the heart of the human dilemma of living here. So I was led to, I worked with a fellow from Chicago that had a school of, school of massage, but it wasn't massage. We didn't use oil. He worked on athletes and dancers, and it was really fun. Creating, he showed me techniques of how to create space in the body through movement and and deepening, and it was almost like sinking your hands in clay where you can't force the clay. I knew that as a potter. You try to force the clay, and it just flops over and really doesn't give a shit. So it, the clay really taught me how to feel in my hands and as an extension of my heart <laughs> and the air, my mind, and the waters, my emotions, the fire of spirit, and things started to 
wake up under my hands. I could feel the elements dance and I could feel where there were imbalances, where there was lack of movement and freedom. And it's just, I could feel in myself, it's like, I just want to be free. I just want to be able to move. I want to be able to express and what keeps us stuck. And I could really see how the mind and the belief systems keep our fabric, our tissue stuck. And that the water element that you have to add to the clay is that the emotion. So the emotion needs to be in there to lubricate the mind to free up stagnant belief systems that keep us stuck. <laughs> so much what it is. It's like the mind. It's, it's, it's our attitude. That's our only free will is our attitude. And when we can step outside of that, when we can touch into pain as being information and not a bad thing that we need to get away from, but actually informant, things start to unravel. The layers start to unravel and the fear starts to drop away and it gets juicy and you want to go deeper. So I was led to a teacher. I was looking, I had moved to, gosh, this goes off to, I had started my practice and then Went on vacation with my mom to Greece. Felt like I needed to just get out of town and get some perspective on life and ended up meeting a Swede on vacation. And he asked me to marry him within the first hour and a half. And I said, okay, I have to go home and get divorced. But did that and ended up moving to Sweden. And my practice kind of changed. It was going... I had I had a I had a few years pause in there to reflect and go, okay, I really, really want to deepen. Do I want to become a acupuncturist and really work with the elements and the meridians? Do I want to become a physical therapist and be a doctor? I knew I didn't want to do that. Long story short, sailed part way around the world, left the Sweden, Panama, and ended up coming back to Santa Cruz where I really always wanted to live. Since I was, since I graduated high school, I moved my best friend up there and said, I'm coming back. So came back here and was, gosh, given a massage practice. A friend of mine was a chiro chiropractor and her massage therapist left town, left her high and dry. And I was able to jump in and fill in and didn't really, I, I, I blended, I did a little bit of massage. Because that's what chiropractic office wanted to. But within months, I searched and went, okay, do I want to do Rolfing? Went to a demo for that. That didn't really do it. Cranium sacral work. Now I, I need to be more. I'm more, I'm more young. I'm more hands-on. I'm more, I wanted to be more expensive, expansive than just holding the cranial rhythm. And then... I was working on a world-class athlete and she had found something called myofascial release. And she went and got a session. She called me from the office, put me on the phone at the receptionist, said, Jill, you got to learn this and make an appointment, get treated and figure it out. So I did. And I was blown away. The woman touched me. She worked in my belly and my psoas. It was like, boom, birth of my son came up. I'm sobbing. I'm reliving this whole thing and letting go of 
I actually had him in a hospital and that was traumatic. And I thought, wow, all this shit's awesome. Just, you know, showed me techniques of how to really get into the emotion and into the mental belief systems and places where I felt stuck, where I couldn't access my power. And yeah, I called the office, John Barnes, my fascia release, signed me up, when's your next seminar? And went and did a 10-day seminar and just went, holy shit, this is awesome. But it looks so big because there's no protocol. You learn techniques, but you really have to feel the body. You have to listen. You have to really bring in your intuition. You have to deeply feel and look at the big picture. And it's like, yeah, this is good. This is juicy. This will challenge me. And I found my calling, my teacher. I could almost mouth, you know, as he's teaching. It was like it was so it so resonated with me and came home and it was like worked on people, started doing the techniques. Then I get a phone call from him. Will you come and assist? And that began a 15-year journey, 15-year journey of, of assisting in the work and really deepening. And, and my practice was just booming. I was seeing five to seven people a day. It was ridiculous. And going to Sedona and traveling around the country to assist in his seminars. And yeah. And people were getting better. People were, their lives were changing. People were changed. People were leaving, you know, relationships. People were leaving jobs. People were really looking from that expansive place where they actually had space inside of themselves to start to imagine, you know, what is possible. So the work has just been a, a life away. <laughs> and the way knows the way. So in a journey of like, there's no separation between that work and life. And then I started working on horses. Horses have been in my life for most of my life. From the beginning of having to babysit the little kid next door to be able to get my, to rent my horse to go to my lessons, to then my stepdad bringing a horse, surprising me. So I very busy practice up until I cut back the pandemic. Thank God. I'm so grateful. It gave me my first sabbatical year time of not working and got some big time to reflect and and start to slow down a little bit <clears throat> yeah where that dovetails into my mother coming and backtracking to meeting you Rupert which was a pretty cosmic experience I don't even know if well, I shared well, it with you let me let me go to your mother and let me go to how you met me because this is going to inform readers listeners the 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 key word here is stuck and basically what you're saying is you have built a phenomenally successful in a, without a website, without any social media, without any cheerleaders, or pom-poms, my sort of myofascial release practice that began with pottery, went through intuitive touch and then went through formal training. And now I do know, I, I, it, it, Jill, Jill Cohen listeners is a well-kept secret. Santa Cruz, California is one of the world's most beautiful places and an awful lot of people want to live there. So of course it's very expensive and to be able to, through a bodywork practice by land, have horses, look after people, support people, yeah. as well as running the business and keeping people unstuck while at the same time being a complete and total hippie which is no insult 
is an I own it fully. And, and what I mean by that, because I'm a total hippie too, is the hippies had it right. And what I mean by the hippies had it right was that the counterculture had it right. The counterculture came along in, in, in direct, as a direct answer to what had created World War II and what had created colonialism that had led up to World War II. And those of us who were born during the counterculture, I was born in 67. When were you born, Jill? I was born in 54. Right. So the counterculture was happening and it was happening for a very good reason. But we know that it, people re think that it imploded and people think now if you say to people, oh, you know, you, you're just a hippie or that person's a hippie, it's almost like a, a pejorative. And it, to my mind, no, no, it's actually the highest um, compliment because not only did the hippies get it right, but all of the areas now where the real estate is the highest in the world is because there were ex-hippie communes or ex-artist communes who went in there and created an atmosphere and an ambiance and an aesthetic that then other people wanted to come in and share in, whether that's Santa Fe or whether that's the left bank of Paris or whether that's East London, or actually Notting Hill in London, or all these areas that we think of as so shishi, they, 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 they were all hippie communes. And this will always happen because the hippies are the pioneers. And what they're about is quality of life and quality of values and belief, and basically living through love and, and, and nature and aesthetics and community. And so that you have done that, talk like a hippie, act like a hippie, look like a hippie, live like a hippie, while building a really solid business that gets people unstuck. And the reason why I want to go to this word stuck is because you've had, I know, quite a few times in your life when you've been stuck and you've had to walk the talk. And now even one could say you are very stuck. And that's why I wanted you to come on the show because it's listeners. It's not like Jill Kerwin is coming on saying, Oh yeah, you know, I sort of made it into hippie paradise and I sort of live in uh, a Gaudi garden in Barcelona, you know, independent of any sort of cares or woes. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. It's almost like life has thrown at you, Jill. Okay. You want to deal with stuckness? Try this, try this, try this. Yeah. And you keep like thinking those baskets, sinking those baskets. So before we go into where you've been stuck and how you're people might think you're stuck now, yet are actually self-actualized. Let's dial right back to the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Houston, Texas on an Air Force base. My mom got pregnant a year before my dad was out. <clears throat> so we lived in, yeah, outside of Houston there. And what was funny is that really goes into really my work of being in my mommy's belly and she didn't acknowledge she was pregnant with me until she was like five months pregnant. And I'm just going, why am I walking around not wanting anybody to look at me? If they're, you know, if they see that I'm here, it's like I always had that feeling of, Jill, what are you doing here? That I was going to get asked to leave. Yeah. So I got to do the Leonard Orr rebirthing work back in the 70s and discover that, oh, that's not mine. That was hers, you know? And but that stuckness, it was like that stuckness, it's, it's just, it's like the stuckness, is, it's like the pain, it's an informant, it's information, and the stuckness is going into it. It's like using the compression, it's like, it's like the piece of coal being compressed, and then it's like it's so compressed, and then boom, the freaking star, the diamond, it explodes. So 
Okay, so you're born in 54 in this Air Force base outside of Houston, but you're, you're Jewish. You, you talk like a New Yorker. Your folks were from New York, moved up to New my, York? Yep. Nope. My parents were both, <clears throat> my father from the Bronx and my mother from Brooklyn, and their families from Romania and Ukraine. Ashkenazis. Um, Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazis. Yeah. From yeah, Eastern Europe. Like, like my, my Jewish heritage is that side too, U Ukraine, Lithuania. Okay. Yeah. How, how, how long do you live in, um, how long do you live in New York? How practicing Jewish was your family? How Ashkenazi was my, your Yeah. So my mom's, my maternal side were not very, they went to temple. My uncle was bar, mit, bar mitzvah. Girls didn't get bar mitzvah then. But on my mom's side and they were, they were Jewish. Absolutely. They acknowledged their heritage, but they weren't practicing so much. My father's side, Grandpa Irving was, he came from Romania as a little three-year-old boy with his dad, landed in New York. Mom had died in Romania. And Grandpa was a very religious man, but very, very humble. Didn't push it. We had Passover. Prayers, you know, ran through my head, but I was never sent to Sunday school. Thank God. I went with a friend once and I just went, you believe in this crap? So that was kind of like... <laughs> I was into Baba Ramdas. I was into Be Here Now. I was into all that. But there was something deep in my soul about, I mean, I see Fiddler on the, Fiddler on the Root when I sob. I sob, yeah. I sob, I sob through the entire deep, yeah. deeply it, It's a tribal my, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's so tribal, so tribal. Deeply. It's, it's ingrained in me in probably many, many lifetimes. But we lived in New York for about, Three years when I, by the time I was three, we moved to to California. My dad got a job working for his uncle that worked in the office furniture business. We lived right below the Hollywood Hills sign. It was awesome in Beechwood Village, and lived there. My dad started to do do well. My little brother was born, and then we moved to the San Fernando Valley. Got a house right above Ventura Boulevard, and it was kind of cool back then. It was awesome. It was it's totally different. Now, back then, it, it really was a cool place. What made and it so cool back then? It was more rural? It was a little bit more rural, but it was a little bit more, it wasn't so glitzy. It was just, I mean, I could walk barefoot Ventura Boulevard. Now it's like everybody's in heels and sunglasses. Right. That whole, that whole deal. Movie industry started. I used to see the Beverly Hills Billy granny on her motor scooter with a little dog in the basket. The hardy, hardy guy lived two blocks over and there were movie stars everywhere, but it was so down to earth. It, it was a community. It was a great community. We could play in the streets and play in the, play in the, you know, empty lots and until the sun went down. Now it's like kids are, don't even walk around at all. Everybody's on a cell phone. And in a car. But it was a great place. It was a great place. And. And I got into horses. My parents, they took me to Pickwick Stables in Burbank, and they put me in. I rode with the California Rangers. We learned equitation and formation riding and all that. And that was really fun. It was begging, you know, begging for rides to get to the barn. 
Yeah, did that. Growing up, wasn't so much into school, but I was definitely into art and gymnastics, jewelry, pottery. Those were my big subjects, and I did graduate somehow. <laughs> but so when I was 13, yep. No, you go ahead. When I was 13, there was eighth grade art class and there was a kick wheel in the corner and I just saw it and went for it and got on it. And I was able to actually center the clay and make a pot. And the teacher, you know, let me stay on it the whole year. It was awesome. And then my mother saw that my interest and there was a pottery studio called the Muddy Wheel right on Metro Boulevard, like just a block up from her house. I could walk. And there was an amazing apprentice program there. And she put me into that program. There was an incredible master potter there, Fred Wilson, black man, just brilliant, and created this whole apprentice program for kids and, and for adults. I mean, we had pottery lessons for anybody. I was really learned to grow pots, to make, make clay, make glazes, fire the kiln. My parents would let me stay up till midnight because we were firing the kiln and there go to pottery shows, sell our wear, had a gallery in front. I bought my first car with my own money when I was 17. Loved doing that. That really, that really gave me my kickstart into being self-actualized, that I could do what I love. At 15, I was teaching adult throwing classes. And it was like, my God, this is freedom. And I have a car and I can go drive to the beach. You know, I can do yeah, I had a life. I had freedom. I had it gave me my wheels that I was then able to explore life and gave me, yeah, livelihood. And then when I was 18, my grandparents had left me a little bit of money for education. So my parents were just brilliant. They didn't even talk about college. They signed me up to go down to San Miguel de Allende to pottery school for three months and do large pot throwing and glaze calculation and you know, that's what I got to do. And on the way home, I hitchhiked to Watanejo and met some interesting people. And You've hitchhiked from San Miguel de Allende. Miguel de Allende down to Zihuatanejo. down up and yeah. down. And this was what, what year? This was in 72. Okay. So, well, the I was... year when I, so in 72, when I graduated high school, First, they gave me the opportunity of going with the American Institute for Foreign Studies. There were maybe 20 other kids from my graduating class that met up with, with, with pods of, you know, graduates going to Europe. And we all met in Southampton, England. And we went to the University of Southampton for three weeks and took archaeology, anthropology, you know, English lit, all that stuff. It was a blast. And then we ended up making our way, trains and planes across Europe and ended up in Venice and boarded the original love boat. <laughs> but they put us kids in the belly of the boat and we party. We had a blast and traveled the entire Mediterranean. And, and this all um, happened, did this, that, all happened so, through, this all happened through pottery. Well, no, my grandparents had passed had passed away and left me a little bit of money for education, but my parents, this was indeed, American Institute. Indeed, in, indeed, but if you hadn't had, if you hadn't already been exploring pottery to the degree that you did where you were already no, exactly. self-actualized yeah. to whatever degree through it, then it, it, these experiences would be meaningless, right? You, you, or, or at least exactly. would have just been a party. 
But no, you, yeah. you'd, you'd already explored how to. And I was pissed off because they had signed me up for, for San Miguel Day. Yeah, they signed me up for San Miguel Day and Day. And then the pottery studio, they were going to Japan and they were going to study with a Raku master. And it was like, I was going, you got to let me do this. It was like, it's like, you know, why aren't you? <laughs> they said, no, you already signed up for this. You're going to do this. And, and it was a, it was, it was an amazing experience of traveling. It was my first time. Yeah. Going to Greece, going to Italy, going to Israel, which was just amazing. Yeah. And discovering, starting to travel. So that was the beginning of my traveling. Okay. Exploring the world. I've I've been everywhere. And then you come, you, you You come, you come back to California after all this and you're how old? I was 18. Okay. And, and then they put me on the plane, New Year's Eve, they put me on the plane to fly to Guadalajara on my own. I had to find the bus to go over the mountains to San Miguel de Allende. They booked a room for me for two nights. And then I had to find, you know, I found other people in school. We all rented a house and did art and lived together. It was my first time being out of the house, finding other people that had common interests, had some great adventures. I'm sure this was what year? 70s. Yes. Yeah. So 73. This was the beginning of 73. Right. So, so we're in the, we're in the height of the counterculture here. I think, I think people often think that the counterculture began and ended in the sixties. And of course it didn't, it just sort of got going a bit in the fifties, found its feet and its wings in the sixties, flapped the wings and took off in the seventies and sort of has been soaring around the, the metaverse ever since. Yeah. At what point did you dive fully into full-on hippiedom and how did you marry that with your it was straight up your like uh, making it all work financially and so because people often think those are two very different things and clearly they're not but talk us through that so a couple of things i guess the counterculture whatever the hippie it was, I think when I was 15, I saw there was a documentary on slaughterhouses and it fucking blew my mind how inhumane that was. I was at my girlfriend's house and we went through, we threw everything away out of the freezer. It was disgusting. I became a vegetarian. It was like, why do we have to take life to sustain life? So that began that. And then wanting healthy food. And then, yeah, when I, the kid's dad and the beginning of that, I was, I had my kids at 20 and 21. So backing up, I got home from Mexico, went and met all my pottery friends. They were at a pottery show. My best friend, yeah, she was there too. She was dating this guy, but they were getting ready to break up. And I kind of, I was into him. And so we ended up getting together. I, I got home from Mexico. I got a call from a pottery teacher that I had met over one of the summers, I think when I was 17 on Kill Building up in Idlewild. And he kind of knew I was, he was waiting for me to graduate high school. And he called me and asked me to come apprentice with him and hired me basically to work for him. So I said, yeah, if I can bring my boyfriend. So I brought my boyfriend at the time, which is now my kid's dad. And yeah, he learned to build kilns and make clay. And I worked in the studio and eventually, and we lived with him. And eventually he and his girlfriend moved out and we took that house over. And that's when we start our family. We had our garden and it was all really about you know, growing your own food. So you have healthy, good food to eat. And I had my babies and 
Yeah, we were hippies. We were just wanting to live a good, clean life and live on the land. I remember the book, Trencher, Touch the Earth, what was happening with all the First Nation people and the inhumanity with that. And that started to awaken in me and how they had it all. You know, it was going back to the earth. Started studying herbs, Jethro, Floss, wrote Back to Eden. So it was all the natural remedies and teas and herbs, dry brushing. Yeah, how to take care of ourselves. We weren't taught that in school. So that was really my awakening to, you know, you call hippies. Hippies were just wanting to live in nature with the earth and the elements and and caring about each other and having it more about what's you know in our hearts and what brings us joy rather than making the grade or getting the job or having the degree or any of that how can we live in harmony with the creatures and each other and ourselves and yeah, you, you married this yeah, to a very, a, very good sense of business. Yes. Why were those two things not diametrically opposed? Because of who my parents were. My dad, he saw my love for pottery and thought, okay, how the, instead of sh- shoving her into a university, you know, he gave me opportunities to actually put my, my dad was a hands-on person. God, he could do electric. He was an amazing shipwright. I mean, he could remodel the entire house. He could do all the plumbing. He could do all the wiring. And he learned that from his father, who was an attorney who worked his way as a little Romanian boy working for his father, who was a tailor, to put himself through Columbia Law School. This comes, this is in my, these are my ancestors. This is, is it genetic? Is it, um, part of my fiber it's like anything's possible i came from that and you got to do it you do it you work hard i mean my dad would put me under the house and i'd be running wires and you know we did we we, we work we did it yeah people often think yeah, that, dad, that that hippiness was somehow a counter thing to work not opting out of work and it, it oh seems that it really worked. wasn't no Oh my God. Yeah. We built our own kiln. We made our, you know, our own clay. It was, it was like we worked. We planted our garden. I had a horse in my backyard and it was, you know, I, I tie dyed my own clothes. I sewed my own clothes. You know, it was like it was work. It was, you make it, you do it, you want it, you create it. And it was like my parents showed me that. My mother gave me the support that, Jill, you can do and be anything you want to do. It's like, and I believed her. And my dad showed me how you just do it. We, we know that you went from this successful business in pottery to one in human clay. Talk us through the jump from one to the other. And by the way, have you well, taken it, pottery with you? Yeah, I can sit. I, I sat down on a potter's wheel. A few years ago, and I was like, boom, I hadn't done it for 20 years, and it's all there. It's in my hands. It's, it's, it's there. It's, I still, I'm still a potter. 
I'm not doing it as a living. And I'm kind of somebody that gets into things. When I get into it, I get into it fully. I'm not a half-ass. So it's like, I'm not going to go to the college and throw pots and then have to, like, I've got to have my own studio. Mm. So I really looked at it and I love the clay and I, I love that. But I, but I still get to be a potter with people. I get to still touch the clay in with the human element added to it with water, earth, fire, and air. Talk us again through how did you how how did that jump happen from earth? Well, that we were we were living we were living in our house we were renting we were renting this old place we had a huge piece of land had a pottery studio we had our we sold our pots in front of our house the dog would bark they'd ring the bell we'd come out and sell pots and then we got thirty days notice we had to move. So in that time, I had gone, my best friend had moved to Austin, Texas. Austin was just an awesome little town back then in 79. It was really because the year John Lennon died. I remember that distinctly. And the first Whole Foods. Yeah, so I went and visited visited my friend. I said, I want to live here. So I rented a place. And I came home and I said, we're moving to Austin. Pack it up. And we, we I had a flatbed truck and we had a Volkswagen bus and we caravan to Austin. We brought the kill on the back and we had the dog and the bird and the kids and we moved to Austin. And I worked for, I worked with, with Joy. She had your heart's desire. We did vegetarian catering and house cleaning. So we did that together for a couple of years. And then I started touching people. And then people started to ask me to touch them. And I thought, sure. So why? Why did you start to touch people? What? what, what? You because weren't doing that before. Because people, because, and then suddenly you because, were. There, there's, no, there's some connection story there. What is it? The pain. I mean, people's pain. If I could touch people and it helped them release pain, it was just. But you presumably might have been doing that before. Or did you suddenly only start doing that in Austin? And if so, why? No, Ross and I, so we would, we would, yeah, we were throwing pots. I was unloading tons of clay and it's hard work. And we, I went and found this book called The Book of Massage. And it had techniques of different massage techniques of how to, you know, work on the shoulders or, it was just, it was a hand-illustrated book called The Book of Massage. <laughs> and we, we would practice techniques on each other. And it was like, oh, this is, an, you know, it came really easily. It was kind of a no-brainer. It was like I knew how to touch clay. And after a while, got good at it and just transferred over from my hands to people. And didn't want to start up another business of pottery that was too much groundwork. So I guess I just, I don't know. It was just, I'm drawn to people. It's like, that's how I connect us through touch. Mm. It's really how I connect us through touch. Okay. So now you're, so yeah, basically you were working your body out massively through unloading all this clay. And I, I know you, you're, you're one of these people who looks small and frail. You're <laughs> five foot or so, or five foot one, and you're yeah. slightly built and so on. But I know how actually yeah. You, like many people like that, are actually much, much, much stronger than you appear. Um, but you're, you have this sort of lithe uh, dancer's, you know, f physique. So that's some toll is being taken as you're 
you know, unloading these yeah. many, many tons of clay. Actually, it would be the same whatever physique you had. Um, so you get interested in massage and touch simply because you and your partner are hurting because you're working so hard. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And that, we that, would that's the missing, techniques that, on each that's other. The, that's the mass, missing piece for me. And yeah. then and then you start transferring that over to other people and people start going, oh, actually, Julia, you're good at this. Wow, I feel better. So you decide to take it further. And we know from what you said earlier that you then from there found your way to the releasing of the what's now mainstream, but back then was by no means mainstream, you know, myofascial release. Yeah. People didn't even know what it was. Now people do. Now people mm -hmm. pay, you know, big bucks for it. But back then it, it was a, you know, a fringe thing at best. But you've been exploring this for decades and helping people become unstuck. And yet you found yourself stuck quite <laughs> a few times. So talk us through the various stucknesses from the green ones over to the red ones. And how has this practice of yours allowed you to continue to self-actualize, even when it's like you've taken a blind turn in the labyrinth and have hit the dead end? I think many, many listeners here, and this is why I want you to prick up your ears, listeners. If you think you're stuck, if you think you've been stuck for years, you're listening to a podcast like this, of course, every single person on this podcast has been stuck at various kinds, but I think Jill has a particular relationship with this and therefore some really good pearls of wisdom for you. So Jill, your stucknesses, how have you gotten through them? The way out is in, I had to go deeper. I had to really go in and feel and feel the stuckness, really face it dead on. And <clears throat> I mean, I've I've been a pretty introspective person. Um, I I had to really go into my stuckness. I had to feel the limitations of it. What was stuckness number one? Would you say what was the first big one that came and went? You're not moving any fucking further. You're now Sequoia. Okay, talk Sequoia. Us. Tell us about Sequoia. Sequoia is my grandson. He's twenty. He just turned twenty-three. And I was at his birth. I got to assist his birth. And <clears throat> that little guy, when he was six months old, he looked at me and it was like, it was like a shockwave went through me. And I just realized you've come here to teach me. This, you're the reason I'm here now. This, you're my teacher. You're my big teacher. It struck me so deeply. There was something about him. And as we watched him, he was, you know, he didn't talk. He would line things up. Yeah, he'd come in the house and he'd line shoes up. He'd pull drag pairs across my oak floors, line them up, and went, huh, something's going on. And I had a woman that was a special ed teacher from Berkeley and I said, you know, would you come meet my grandson? And she said, yeah, he's definitely autistic. He is on the spectrum deeply. And I said, will you come talk to my daughter? And she said, she's going to hate me. And it was like the most devastating thing because this child that had been 
born as my teacher, just this golden, brilliant being was just differently expressed, really. But it felt like just devastation, the challenges and the ability to communicate. And yesterday's abilities were profound. But it was like I could see the and feel the devastation in my daughter and son-in-law. And that pain was just like an arrow in my heart. And the love <laughs> just so deep that I couldn't make it different. I couldn't change it. So I went into it. And let go of the label and was just with his humanness how he showed up and it brought me into a whole new world of experience of what is possible yeah it felt the stuckness it was just like an arrow in my heart and the pain this is of course where we first met so for the listeners i met jill right when the horseboy movie and book came out in 2009 and we right. were doing we did a screening in berkeley california if you remember and mm -hmm. you came up and talked to me afterwards and said i've got this grandson and so on and what was interesting was right before you someone had come to talk to me who was completely basically nonverbal, who came with a minder who wasn't autistic but had suffered from a 40 year old man terrible 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 lines Lyme's disease and was absolutely stuck inside himself and the, the effort of expression caused his entire body to tremble and could barely get words out. And I was just dealing with the opening up of what autism and neuropsychiatric and neurocognitive, some medically based, some less medically based can do. I was just beginning to, because the movie had come out, the book mm -hmm. out, so, you know, people were coming and mm -hmm. presenting themselves in front of me and I was beginning to go, oh my gosh, this is so much bigger than I could have thought. And I remember you then were the next person who came up to, to talk to me. And I was already, I was just sort of recovering from the, basically the sort of the, 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 the 20 minute education that this dude had just put me through. I was like, I didn't even know about mm -hmm. limes. You know, I, I sort of knew that something called limes existed. Mm -hmm. I had no idea it could harm or affect a person like this. And I'm sort of just, you know, Processing all that. And I remember you show up and you say, look, I've got this grandson who's kind of like your son. And we, I, I remember thinking immediately when I met you, oh, tribe member. And, you know, I have, I have an Ashkenazi, an Ashkenazi Jewish side of my family as well. And I'm a great believer that probably we're all sort of cousins really, because it wasn't that big of a population. And then it got blown, you know, into the diaspora. And then you came out to text, ironically, to Austin, which you had for, for so long, with Sequoia. And I remember looking at Sequoia and going, wow, he's, he's more severe than my kid. Oh. He's, he's, he's in another, another league. And I saw the, the intensity of the effort and the uncertainty and the devotion and the 
in German you say Schwerigkeit, you know, the, 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 the weight of this whole thing. And yet you retained, you and your daughter actually retained joy and imparted this into Sequoia. I know that there were many ups and downs later with Sequoia, yet it stuck you in some ways in that you had to then basically turn over your land, your practice, your horses, your time, your life to be in service to your grandson. And then I remember you say, you know, sometimes there'd be something happening and I'd say, oh, Jill, do you want to come to this? He'd be like, Rue, I can't, I can't, I'm, I, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm stuck here. I have to do this. And, and, and me thinking, yeah, yeah, you're right. You, you do. But wanting to honor the, the devotion that you were, that you were making. How did you feel? your quote unquote stuckness with suddenly saying, no, okay, I've just got to sit here in Santa Cruz and create a world for my, for my grandson who can't yet deal with the outside world. How do you feel that that stuckness unstuck you? Or how do you feel, even I have been, how, how do you feel it self-actualized you? So I have been so deeply guided. I mean, so to back up before I met you, I was back riding with Sequoia. It was happening. The first time the kids brought him to the ranch, I said, here, hand him on up to me. This was before I met you. No horse biking. I was just listening to the inner guidance. Give him to me. Sat him in the saddle in front of me. He was nonverbal, pretty much nonverbal. We walk off and in 30 seconds, he's singing the ABC song with the little tune, ABC, singing. And then he goes into some little cowboy jingle. And I'm just like, I come back, I ride to the kids, tears are flowing. It's like, he's here. It's like, this is, I go, there's something here. So started riding with him regularly. And then maybe a year later, my mare was just ready to give birth. She was in the pasture with another mare that had just had a baby that was six months old. And I said, you know, to the mare, I said, I said, I said, Rosie, you're on. Take care of things tonight. You know, like, take care of my mare. I know she's going to give birth. And as I'm driving out of the ranch, I hear this voice, this vision that says, you need to go find the Mongolian healers. Boom. Left with that. Months later, somebody says, hey, there's this movie documentary that's been made called The Horse Blythe showing up in Berkeley, you might want to go check it out. And that's when I got online, got tickets, made sure. <laughs> and then I met you. How do you feel? So uh, guidance. So the you, inner guidance okay. and listening. And where, where did how I got unstuck? It was like I, I stayed open. Where, in the self-actualization thing, you know, a lot of people might feel if they're in a situation like that, where you're serving a special needs kid or a sick family member or something and you've just got to fucking stay there probably for years you've by now built against the odds you know most mainstream westerners feel that you know you can't be a, a good capitalist and be a hippie or you can't be a good capitalist and be a tree hugger we know this is not true at all 
but you've proved it. You've, you've by this time built your business, you've bought land in Santa Cruz, California, which is ridiculously expensive. And you've got horses and you've got these beautiful yurts and you're doing this amazing body work and you don't even have to advertise it. Now everyone and their dog is trying to come to you, turning people away. And you've, you've traveled all over the world. As you say, you, you were married to the Swede, you were married to this other guy, you, you, you sailed all over the world. You, 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 you lived here, you lived there. You've been in Mexico, you did this, that, did, and suddenly <laughs> screeching halt. And I also know that when you have a big special needs thing like this come into your life, it can, it can throw a massive spanner into the wrench of your business because the time that it takes to look after this person takes time from making a living. How did the process with your grandson help you self-actualize further? I did my work. I felt my feelings. I did my own interpersonal work. I raged. Okay. I raged and I cried and I screamed and I stomped and, 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 and I did it consciously by choice because I knew going in the way, you know, the way in is out. Okay. The way in is out. That sounds awfully close so I, to Marcus Aurelius. What stands in that was the stoic philosopher? What stands in the way? The impediment to action it increases yeah. action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Can you go deeper Absolutely. with this for us? Yeah, yeah, go deep. And the way knows the way. It's trusting the way. It's trusting mother life. It's trusting the, it's like you're not going to paddle upstream. That's ridiculous. Like, you know, train comes down the track, you get on or you're going to get dragged. Yeah. So, so I, I went into it. Okay. So you, 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 you go into your feelings, you rage consciously, you cry consciously, you go into your feelings, you get in the canoe, you go downstream, not upstream. Where does it bring you out? I trust mother life. What um, happened though? Tell us the story. What, what, what? You, you, you then you then went away from that brief time that we had together with Sequoia in Austin on our ranch. You then had many many years of somewhat what to the outside I could look like a stuckness. How how did that? Where did it leave you? Where did it bring you? I stayed present with my life. I stayed you know picking up a lot of horse shit. That's where I'd get my biggest revelations. I stayed you know I showed up for work. I did my laundry. I I. I stayed with it. I cared. I cried. I felt the pain. And I knew that, you know, I had to pay my mortgage. You had to pay property taxes. You got to eat. I'm a good life. I'm going to show up. My father showed me that. You don't give up. You you just keep, you do. And it's, and it's, it's, I don't know. I'm stubborn. I'm, I'm strong-willed and I'm passionate about life. And I'm deeply grateful for this human birth sort of most of the time sometimes it sucks but i allow myself to feel the feels and i go into it i don't push it away i don't i own it i don't want to be a victim it's like i'm too my ego's too big for that i set intentions i look into the future well, what do i want in my life i don't want to be i don't want to stay stuck i want to in my stuckness i want to be fucking great in my stuckness I don't want to be a miserable, you know, 
don't want to waste this lifetime. I suppose you could argue that clay is a is a, is a is a material that is both stuck and unstuck, right? It's 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 it cloys, and it fires, and then it holds for thousands of years, possibly even fossilizes, and at the same time, it's, it's totally malleable within its stuckness. Mm-hmm. Where did the journey with Sequoia, and not just Sequoia, because I know that you gave up a lot, you know, proportion of your property, not just to him, but to his parents. And you, mm-hmm. you gave over a lot of your living space to this. You didn't run away from it. You, you... Well, actually, okay. I have to be fully honest. I owned my old house. Rachel and Leon and I said, let's bring the horses home. This is the way, you know, the horse is amazing. Let's, let's group together. So I was a landlady, ran to my place out. I still own the house. The bank wouldn't loan me the money to go in. So really the house is theirs. And yet I am a silent partner because the bank wouldn't loan. But if we sell, I've got a big pace of this. Right. But nonetheless, you set up that whole structure. That's, And yeah, then you absolutely. had to be physically present. You couldn't be like, well, you know, I'll have, I'll have Sequoia maybe one one weekend in three, perhaps. You're like, right oh, no. all it, the time, hands in the clay. He, his bedroom was right across the hall from me, and I didn't sleep. Nobody slept, and it was, yeah, in it. There are so many people out there that they they know it on their special head teachers or whatever, unless you live with it day and night, you really get it. It's huge, 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 huge to windows broken and holes in walls, even not in an angry Sequoia, pick up a stick and boom, he's singing at the top of his lungs and banging here with the stick, banging there, there goes a window, there it goes, you know, it's like, it's just in the fridge, getting something out, fridge doors open, cashews everywhere. Um, It's just, it's constant. Thank God he sang and he was, he did find his voice. Then we knew where he was. That was a good thing. Okay. So you have a son who's so severely autistic that you then get real estate, create basically a family compound where you, your daughter and your son-in-law can live with the horses because you're getting communication with the horses. But then you go into this 24 seven looking after your grandson with enormously demanding special needs. He's incontinent. He's tantruming. He's like my son was. He's wild. He's all over the place. He breaks stuff. He, you know, but you've created the safe thing. How do you keep earning a living while this is going on? I have my little treatment room and pretty much he went to school for a time, but then that wasn't really great. So brought him home and yeah, Rachel was home with him. Sometimes Leon would have to come and help. I could treat, I was on the property in my studio and work. There were times when I got surprise visited, visits where he'd come barging into my treatment room and luckily all my clients were aware and loving and um, thank God these kids are amazing. I mean, yeah. there's just, even though they're, you know, outside, out of the box, they're, they're mostly beautiful and, and they're just being them. So yeah, I'd get disrupted. Yeah, and he's barged into my treatment room a few times, but it's just kind of all part of the part of life. Um, and then how 
how would you say that this stuckness you're now after all this travel after the, this life between different continents and cities and sailing around the world and uh, from earning your own living through your hands from a teenager and now suddenly you're stuck you're stuck on this property and how... well, luckily i was i was stuck with my horses i was stuck with my family i was stuck where i love i'm not a big i don't I've traveled the world. I feel like I've been. So it was like, you know, like, like I thought, eh, okay, I guess I'm done. I mean, it did kind of, yeah, when I had to cancel my trip back to see you guys and ride with Sophia, that was, that was a pisser. And at the same time, Rachel was super sick too. Yeah, man, everything, everything kind of came together at that point. But it was like, you got to do what's at hand. It's, it's not. There wasn't, I'm not going to complain about it or be a victim. It's like, I still want to be able to drive my own boat. So I owned it and went into it and just saw this is where I am. This is how life is. And I'm going to live my life a hundred percent right where it is. And what did you even do? In stuckness, what did you do to, to, to deal with the frustration of it all? I yeah, I wasn't even able to travel that much anymore. I got some body work, but not very much. Luckily, my daughter's trained in the work that I do. We could work on each other. And actually, okay. Leon's pretty good, too. So we would work on each other. Smoke pot, dance, get pissed off, garden. I could take the horses out, go ride. Did you rage and hit pillows? I sometimes, yeah, but I could do it therapeutically. I mean, mm -hmm. it was like, yeah, you got to get it out. It's like, yeah, I've raged. I can, yeah, I could explode, you know, I could. And in the myofascial work, assisting, that's, that was kind of my job. I was good at like setting rooms on fire and getting everybody to rage many pillows. We had a room of, yeah, a hundred students once and I got, I was rocking and rolling. And it's just amazing when you can get that out. It's like how the aliveness, mm. you know, instead of, instead of smoldering in it and getting small in it, I got big in it. And, I, or, and I'd sit up on the hill. I'd get outside in nature. That was my biggest thing. Thank God we have seven acres here and I can get out and get away from people. I could go down and be with the horses. But really just I need a lot of what I needed was perspective. And that's what really, really helped me. God, I remember one time having that thought that, yeah, they can lock me up in a prison cell, but they can't take me outside of myself. And I can close my eyes and the world is so fucking expansive. It's amazing. So it's like, it's like there is no real stuckness. It's like you can feel, you know, it's like, yeah, I would have liked to have been going places and, I mean, visit and ride with you and. But it was what it was, and it was mine to do, to care for my mom and to be here and support my kids with and Sequoia and love. It's... Well, now you said your mom. So for the listeners, our internet pros, I'm getting Jill to, to uh, retell what she already told me. So what happened? It's, you're in the midst of this whole thing with being a sort of full-time carer for a, a, a very severely autistic and wanting to set up a horse play camp and, you know, do stuff here, wanting to expand that. Like, ah. And then something yeah, happens, mom happens gets, with your mum. What happens with your mum? Mom, she gets diagnosed with lung cancer. And thank God they found it soon enough. She had a good oncologist. 
So I went down every three weeks. I would drive to LA, about a six hour drive and go through, you know, be there to support her with their chemo and just buy good food and stock her freezer with really good food and make sure that she had the nutritional support to get her through this because she's been my biggest cheerleader in life. Yeah, did that. And came home and went back and came home and went back and she ended up getting through it, went in through remission. But at this point, she's what, 83 years old. She'll be, yeah, she'll be 89 in August. And she had been working, but got to a point where she was not as clear as she had been. It started to lose her confidence and didn't feel that she could really, didn't want to live on her own anymore. So she called and said, can I come live with you? And I said, okay, I live in a year. And I went about the land and she had a beautiful, spotless apartment and gorgeous decoration. And, you know, it's like, this is a change. I live in a freaking yurt and there's dirt everywhere. And it, she and Skip a beat, man, she came up here and just loved it and would sit on my deck and she could see the horses and loves my little dogs and the birds. And it, I got to bring my mom to the country. What an opportunity for her that had been a city girl her whole life. And she got to actually touch the earth. You know, it was such a gift to be able to share that with her and to expand her life experience a little bit. But slowly, it's been it's been a little over five years now. And, and I was excited she was going to come live with me because we used to love to play Scrabble. And I pulled out the Scrabble board when she first came to move and she forgot how to play. I don't know, fuck. And she the looked good. The dementia. Dementia. So, dementia. So you and go, it, so you go, you go, <laughs> autism. I, I go, I can do dementia. I can do autism. I can Cancer, do dementia. What? Dementia. Yeah. And now you're, you're still looking after your mother with dementia in a year. Yes, I am. Well, I put up a second yurt, so she has a little her own little bedroom, and then we have the big yurt, and I built an awesome bathhouse in between. And uh, but it's like she's getting I she's my little girl, and she's kind of it's like as long as I'm good and I keep my together, not a bit. She's sweet as pie. She's just this little girl wakes up smiling every day, but she's putting her underwear on backwards. She gets up in the middle of the night. What am I supposed to be doing? And it's like three in the morning. You're supposed to be sleeping off. <laughs> and it's like I, I'm seeing it just slipping and slipping and slipping. And it's like, you know, it's like I, I go in and I feel the vulnerability. She's aware of what's happening. And I feel her vulnerability and and her fear. But her fear isn't that big because she trusts me. Okay. So for the listeners, you don't know what's just happened here. <laughs> Jill was looking away from the camera. And as she was looking away from the camera, Gub, Rowan, my own beautiful, amazing autistic son, came, came, who's, 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 who's here in Germany, who just arrived on an airplane from Copenhagen today and found his own way from the airport here to our little town in north of Frankfurt and has his own house, has his own car, is at college, has been going all over Germany by himself and has just come in to say hi. 
You're awesome, Scott. I miss you so much. I miss your big hugs. Oh my God. Scott, Scott, you, I'm, I'm just going to put the. I'm just going to put the microphone on you. Do you want to say a quick word to, 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 Dennis? But wait, wait, wait till I put these on you. And wait. Hang on one further second. All right. Hello. Aren't you from Square Peg? It's Jill. I am from down down the road from Square Peg. Oh, Dap Jill, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to see you. I love you. <laughs> oh, thank you. I remember your wonderful hugs when you and Dad would take me to the airport. Ugh, I can feel them. I know. I remember a time when I was into a rock radio station when you came to in Austin. Okay. Totally, totally. You were into Smokey and the Bandit, as I recall. Oh, that still <laughs> happens from time to time. It does. <laughs> oh, and Madagascar, our favorite movie. <laughs> oh, I've met so many fans along the way. No. Oh. I find it so yeah. fun to quote it. Yeah. Well, it's so beautiful to see you and you're just growing up and just a magnificent human being. I love and you. I'm also side hugging my little bro, Kyrian. All right. Just, just so mad. Well, that was a, oh a, my that was a visit from royalty. Um, what a treat. Oh my goodness. I can still feel his last hug I got from him at the airport. <laughs> it. The hugs just get better, and then he he's coming uh, to um, live in Europe next year. It's 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 it's, it's all wonderful as it's, it's world is bad. Um, so that's why you can't be stuck. It's like how can you be stuck in that? It's exactly. Like, well, exactly. It's but like I, hello. <laughs> but I I think listeners need to to could you talk them through that? Like you said, I got big within the stuckness, and and we saw that now. You know, Rowan coming in and just blowing our world open in, in that beautiful way. How did your experience, how has your experience of having to basically go into service to Sequoia, to for then your mother's cancer while doing Sequoia, then to your mother's dementia while also with Sequoia, how, how has this apparent stuckness actually been self-actualizing? Just it's deepening my quest for my own self-compassion and my own self-love. It's taking me to an inner journey of loving myself. It's like, yeah, the way out is in, and it's like self-realization. And then boom, you once you realize, <laughs> you know, self-realizes there's there's it all pops. What have you it's realized just, about yourself through this? That I care deeply and it's been external a lot of the time and it's starting to turn it's starting to turn inward really that there is no other that they're just we're all doing this earth walk and we all have this very similar challenges at the core they may look different with different people but everybody has to get up everybody has to eat everybody has to you know find a way to provide and I've got music that keeps popping on that I have to turn off. That we're really all doing this. Our our journeys are all kind of the same in 
fundamental human condition of finding joy or self-expression to, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not my nature to go in and feel sorry for myself or feel like somebody did it to me or I was bad so I'm being punished or it's it's like my nature is expanding into life and I can't deny that it's like it's about joy it's about love it's about service it's like I it's it's is it service that sets one free oh absolutely that's all there is that's all there is a service. And in service, we, let, we come to love ourselves and our humanity. In service, all there is is service. In really, or, or we're in denial of what life, the opportunity of life. Right. So you say in service, we learn to love ourselves. Yeah. In service, we I learn was, to love I, ourselves. I was going to ask you, in this self-actualization, through apparent stuckness while helping other people to become unstuck through it's, how can you be stuck in loving other in serving it's like it's it doesn't like magnets resist it's like you can't serve and not love or it's not service it's right but some people some people self-martyr how have you and i'm i'm sniffing the wind here yeah. i'm not smelling burning martyr here so there's no, there's no. no barbecue smell. <laughs> Quite the opposite. What, how have you learned? What, how, what techniques have you learned for self-love and resilience through all this? Drinking water. Keeping the, keeping the fluids moving. Keeping my heart open. Allowing myself to feel, to cry. To when you say keeping your heart open, though, what do you, what's the nuts and bolts to that? Um, because that's almost like a trite thing to say right but how do you hmm. actually do that what's I keep my feet on the ground I I feel supported by light I I I, the earth it's it's like this you know this round ball it's like it's I it's the port I'm being supported and held and I'm being guided when I quiet down and listen there's constant guidance when I don't know what to do, I quiet down and ask my heart, and boom, the answer's right there. There's no mind. There's no figuring it out. It's like it's quieting down and um, listening. But how does that help you and love yourself more? It's the attention, the focus. It brings me whole into my heart. It's and being grateful. The gratitude comes with that. It's like fuck. I could have incarnated in India. I could have been a beggar on the street. I could have been a kid that's arm was broken so their parents could beg to keep me alive. I've seen that. You've seen that. Gratitude. It's like I have air to breathe. I have water to drink. I have family to love. And if I didn't have family, I could love my neighbor. I could love the creatures, the bugs, the birds, the it's the presence and the listening and the just oh, keeping our eyes open. And God, I'm a dream the other night that I was running this beautiful trail. 
and I was running with my eyes closed and the trail was right there in front of me and I didn't even have, I could see with my eyes closed. So even to not have external sight, we have internal sight. We have internal listening, even if we're deaf and we can't, deaf and we can't hear. We have internal hearing. We have our senses that bring us to our senses. And how can you not be grateful? I was going to ask if gratitude is part of this because big time. I find more and more. I think I thank every chicken for every egg they lay. I cannot pick up a chicken an egg without saying thank you. It's um, every morning to wake up. Thank you. It's for every meal. It's like, and it wasn't that my parents taught me to say thank you. It's just thank you. It's, it's with every breath that I can inhale. It's like to have this human experience, to be able to experience the range, to be able to experience the depth of life and the connection and the things that feel like such roadblocks to be. I remember being in the arena with you and I remember just being just so filled that if, if Sequoia was an artistic, I would have never known you. I would have never had the joy of exploring life and feeling the depth of connection and the depth of aliveness. And the, it's like, how did I get so lucky to have it all line up? It just feels like I'm just, it's like the, it's like every step is just laid. I think it is for everybody. It's just the noticing. It's just the willingness to quiet down and notice and to get out of that constant dialogue uh, that takes us from being present, being in the present moment. So, so it's okay. So service gratitude. Um, you continue to, you're living there on this land in these yurts. You continue to have this successful business. You, your horses are there. Um, tell us about Sequoia. Um, so when I first met you, this is now going back over, over 10 years. Um, Sequoia is now like in his 18 20s. years. It, wow. He's 23. Yeah. Um, so, so gosh, um, where's he at now and, um, where's he on his way to? He is living at the beginning of the pandemic. It was getting out of hand. Rachel and Leon, it's just, it's amazing that they're still married. They're figuring it out. They're working it. They're actually doing great. And it's not the way they thought it was going to look. Rachel needed a break, a mental, emotional break. So she left for a few months and then the pandemic hit and Sequoia was here with Leon and I. And a caretaker here, there, and he got bigger and bigger, and it was becoming unsafe for him, for the house. Everything was. It was getting to be really safe, unsafe. So, they called social services, and the only thing that they could find was there was a rehab place down in Palm Springs that he could get into. And we thought, oh, this was going to be really great, year-long program. And then the pandemic hit. Everything got locked down. They freaked out. He ended up severely medicated because they didn't know how to handle him. They didn't know how to be with COVID 
not even knowing what COVID was. We thought we'd be able to go down and visit him every month. And after a month, it was locked down. And so he'd been down there. And in that, they promised that they would find a good living situation for him because it wasn't becoming, it wasn't sustainable anymore. And I, I have some deep regrets of not, I was doing my best with my mom and working. But so he's in a group home about 40 minutes away from here. There's three other fellows about his age and size, and they've got round the care help, and they're all very loving, but they're stuck. They're just, it's like everything's just at a standstill. And he's surviving, but not really thriving. And it's the biggest pain in my heart. And I've got my mom and I feel in one sense stuck. And he's safe. And Rachel and Leon, we do see him. We do. They do FaceTime. They're in communication with those caretakers and doctors and all that. They're, it's definitely really hands-on. He eats a good, clean, organic diet, any extra supplements. It's like they're really working with us. And yet he's not, I, he's, he's not thriving. Uh, what do you coping. think? What do you think is going to be the way through that stuckness for him? Given that you've some experience in getting through stuckness. What's your gut say? Hmm. Getting him out of there, even if he has to go to Ireland to live somewhere in a more, you know, it's like, you know, Rachel is so far away. I said, but it, so far away anyways find a place that like god if they had the resources to set something up where it was safe it's like like an island where they could be free and be in nature and have the boundaries of the water he can swim <laughs> so that would be safe but to find a natural place for him to be able to, he's nature boy loves he's outside all the time he's and barefoot and he's in in the place where he's staying they, they they can he can do that he can live that way yeah there's a backyard but it's like we wanted them to get a pool to get a trampoline they won't get a trampoline because it's dangerous they can't have a pool because dangerous and it's just so he's got a big fenced in backyard and he could ride his bike a little bit but he, and he can at least sit on the earth he can at least sit in the dirt but He's not able to go down to the beach, to the water, to the forest, to the, yeah. Because the caretakers have to be able to keep up with them and they're so underpaid and so unfed and, yeah. and, and okay. not really educated in what's possible. It's um, funny you said Ireland. There is a man called David Doyle who will not be a guest. He keeps refusing to be a guest on the show. But I work with David very closely and David is as close as I have come to meeting the modern day incarnation of the wizard Merlin. And he has a severely autistic daughter who also had a great response to horses and saw a demo of horseboy method that we did in 2012 in Limerick in Ireland. And he went and set up a place called Liskinet Farm which is exactly what you've described. And the young adults and adults whose families are 
just maxed out. They, they cycle through, they spend a few weeks there and then they cycle back home and then they cycle through again. It's, it, it, it's a cyclical thing. And then some of them go on out to something more independent and some of them don't, but they all thrive and then become working parts of the community. But he's now setting up and I'm going to put you in touch with him because, and the reason I'm having this conversation with you here on this podcast is that if you're listening, listener, this is how things happen. So unstuckness seems to my mind to happen often through conversation that it's almost like you say to the, okay, universe, show me the, you know, you're, you're all powerful. So all power, right. Already, you know, um, and then one throws that out there with a bit of gratitude and boom, a conversation comes up where the next potential thing could come. And it's so funny to me that you said, even Ireland, like out of the blue, why did you say, why just Ireland, you know, all, all the way in California, there's, there's like a bazillion places in America, surely. However, it just so happens that in Ireland, there is a man who's setting up these places. And then there's, there's somebody else who is just in the early stages of beginning to set up something rather similar around people with schizophrenia, young adults who've fallen through the cracks, particularly with narcotic induced schizophrenia, you know, from the very strong forms of overly synthesized marijuana that, you know, have come in, in the last 10 or 20 years, you know, which is very different to the marijuana that we used to smoke. It's now a yeah. completely different thing. It's, it's, you know, it's so full of THC. It's almost like doing acid and it can, it can spark psychosis in some people. So the world is changing, but the, it, for, for listeners, I know this, this podcast seems unusually informal in that like Scub came in, Rowan came in and we're talking with him and now we're riffing in this way, but this is how it's done. Hmm. Don't, wouldn't you agree, Jill, that, that it, it's about absolutely and, and asking for help and having conversations with people and not self-martyring and doing this kind of stubborn. It's good to be stubborn in some ways, like I'm going to get the job done, but yeah. not in the, I'm going to do it all myself. Right. It's dreaming ourselves awake. Dreaming ourselves awake. Talk, go, go on. What do you mean by that? That it's, we had to dream it, to, to have conversations and dream and start to visualize. And then it's like, and then it's like, we can see the vision. I mean, that's how I, it's like the vision came and you need to find Mongolian healer and boom, there's, you know, here's the horseplay, which led, it's dreaming ourselves awake into actualization, dreaming ourselves, we had to dream it, we had to desire it. I mean, desire can lead us down so many roads, but it's like the desire for Sequoia to be happy and fully expressed and living you know, fully enjoy. Absolutely. It seems that we're, we're, we're going to the territory here, which is good territory of, of law of attraction. Yeah. And this, this idea it's of when you're unhappy with something, you know, the one's experience of being unhappy with something launches Abraham Hicks, people would say is a rocket of desire. Yeah. And those rockets of desire that seem to come out of frustration, in fact, set in motion the solutions However, there is a danger there of if we turn our attention to what we don't like and what we don't want all the time, then we just kind of get more of that. 
Mm-hmm. But, but if we can identify in a certain moment, I want this, and then start to turn our attention to that thing, then manifestation can occur. There's something I really like in the Bible, even though I'm not religious, there's many great things in the Bible. And one of them is this business of turning the other cheek in the New Testament. And when I was growing up, you know, I thought, well, that's just being a pussy, you know, why would you do that? You know, turn around and smack them. And then I realized through mentorship and teaching that not through my own realizations, because I'm not that intelligent, that what it meant was turning your attention. So literally your gaze, if you turn your gaze from this thing over here, that's causing you discomfort and disease, you can turn your face is to turn your gaze, you actually have to move your head. Yes. Uh, you turn your cheek to look at something that is working in your life or that you do desire or that is positive. And you simply start going in that direction because that's now where you're looking. You go in the direction where you look. And that, that's, that's how we ride our horses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Body weight, you know, <laughs> the horse follows it. Like a, So that was something I wanted to ask you about. You seem to be good at manifesting. You manifested from an early age in your teens there you were buying your first car and going around the world from your pottery and Mm -hmm. then you started to use human clay and it's done the same thing and you've manifested what many people would look at as a a dream life when you had to move your the, the 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 internet froze so jill had to move her um laptop into her main house from her treatment room and I got a lovely look at her property. And as, as we were walking through all those oaks, I was thinking that's not bad for someone who's made their living through body work as a, as a hippie to, to buy a piece of land like that. That's, that's not too shabby. Make good money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but you know, a lot of people. Would... And I work three and a half hours a day. Wow. And take care of my mom. And... Well, so, so, so how does one manifest that, Jill? Because, you know. Through desire. Your desire. Go on, talk, talk, talk to us more about that. So it's like, I think it's like, yeah, from a spiritual point of view, it's like that's what brings us, you know, into another her- human birth is our un- our unrealized desires. So it's like we just keep those desires, those, you know, just keep keep moving it. Um, that's how we get it, through desire, through wanting it, and then action. How does one, how does one desire long-term things that have not manifested without falling into a trap of frustration and then putting one's attention on what one therefore doesn't have. How does one dance the dance between the frustration of desires that take time to to be fulfilled years, decades even, without falling into that frustration trap where things can't manifest? Hmm. What's the secret? What's the key? There's staying focused to where you want to go sometimes it takes time sometimes you have to pause when you don't know what to do next and you wait and you listen and you you like you say you have the conversations you have the conversations and out of the conversation and then we don't have to do it all alone i mean you weren't always able to work three hours a day to make good money no no how, do, yeah, how, do, no. how does one go from having to work 15 hours a day 
to working three hours a day so that you can make good money and still look after your mum with dementia? You raise your rates, raise my rates in time. I mean, I've got a wait, I've got a pretty good waiting list. I'm booked out about six weeks and I've got a pretty good waiting list. So if anybody changes, I'm just, oh, cool. Then somebody else is going to be able to get in. I don't stress about scarcity. I focus on service. There are people that are in pain that want to get out. You can't come. Okay. Somebody else does want to come. So it's, it's being, yeah, it's, it's like that pathway of, of service and it just, life shows up it's like the the, the disease part but um, you say raise your rates now that's an interesting one so a lot of us undervalue ourselves and i think absolutely go and through, i still do right and yeah. um, you know we might go through some years of imposter syndrome before we yeah. realize actually now we're quite good at our shtick we've now been in it for long enough to know that we're good enough However, one thing I, I would say about you, it, it's one thing to glibly say, raise your rates, but of course you can't raise your rates and, and have it work unless people feel that you're worth those rates. And presumably you're worth those rates because it's back to self-actualization again. Because I do my own inner work. I can't take people further than I've been. So I do my own work. If I'm going to help somebody that's got emotional blocks or that's what I do is a lot of emotional tracing work and inner child work and even past life work and ancestral work. And it's like, it, unless I go in and I do my own work, I mean, I do plant medicine journeys. I go in and I, I, I face my, myself. And it's like, if I can do that, then I can guide others to go in and support them and facing what their roadblocks are. So I, you can't take people further than you've been yourself. I, 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 and I, I know that I get frustrated and I get stuck and I go, okay, Jill, you need to go deeper. When it gets hard, go deeper. Right, right. So it's really about upskilling, isn't it? So I mean, whether those uh -huh. upskills are spiritual or whether they're yeah. learning a skill like a computer program or another way of riding a horse or a professional skill of some sort or all of the above, which it seems that you do. It seems that this forever student thing is... Humility. Okay. <laughs> being a beginner. Humility. It's like, oh, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I need to go learn. Maybe I need to go deepen my skills. It's, yeah, the humility that I don't know it. And, it, and then, and I come back, I've been practicing 42 years and I work in my treatment room. And I still don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And I just have to trust and show up and listen. And, and the way will, the way will show the way, the way will, you know, I got to get in the canoe and um, I can't dance around it. You got to do your work. Something came into my mind yeah. while you were talking about clay and then human clay, which mm -hmm. goes to the heart of the Ashkenazi Jewish story, which some listeners may know is a magical story. If you don't, let me just talk you through it quickly. So Ashkenazi Judaism, the, East, the Jews of Eastern Europe, the Fiddler on the Roof Jews, who then ended up in... New York and South Africa, which is my family and, and so on. They were actually originally not from there. They were originally from Spain and Portugal. And Portugal. yeah, and they were kicked out with, if they got out alive at the end of the 15th century, when the final reconquest of Spain happened and Spain became under Ferdinand and Isabella, who then sent people off to the new world 
who conquered the last Moorish kingdom of Granada and made Spain Christian again. And basically, if you didn't convert, if you were Jewish, it had been a, it had been a haven for Judaism and a very enlightened form of Judaism. In fact, an alchemical form of Judaism, in fact, a magical practice form of Judaism called Kabbalah, and which came out of the Middle Ages there, mostly in Spain with a mixture with Islam and, and, and Sufism and so on. And of course, this was anathema and the Spanish Inquisition was formed under Ferdinand and Isabella and went after these people massively. If you didn't convert, you were killed nastily. And even if you did convert, a lot of times you were killed nastily. And so a lot of them went east into the Ottoman Empire, which was a safe haven. Istanbul, what's now, you know, Constantinople, Byzantium. And then from there, a lot of them up into, um, up the Black Sea and then settling in the areas north of there was now Lithuania and Ukraine and so on. Yeah. And one of the stories that comes out of that magical, Kabbalistic form of Judaism, which is a mystic form of Judaism about trying to, the world being in disharmony and trying to bring it back to harmony through magical use of sacred geometry and numbers and all these sorts of things was the legend of the golem. And the legend of the golem is it, some people say it happened in Vilnius and Lithuania, and some people say it happened in Prague and some people say it happened here. And some people say it seems to be part of a general consciousness that there was a, the rabbi Lowe was his name, who was so in tune with the Kabbalah that he could speak to angels, and that when they were going to attack the ghetto, the Christians were going to attack the ghetto at the behest of the king, because of course the Jews had been lending the king money and the king didn't want to pay it back. So it's much easier to just go kill them all. The rabbi Lowe works through the Kabbalah and takes clay and creates a life in clay, a golem, this giant made of clay who lumbers off into the night and saves the day, basically pushes back the torch bearing pitchfork waving hordes who are going to come wow. and rape, rape and kill everybody in the, in the, in the ghetto. The reason the word ghetto comes from the Jewish thing, it, the, the name of the ghetto, the ghetto is the area of Venice where the Jews live that, and it's now come to mean, and it had a wall around it, like as many Jewish areas did in European cities. And now that's come to be a ubiquitous term for any neighborhood that is underserved and enclosed in some way, but it, it, the ghetto is still there. It's called the ghetto in, in Venice. That's where it comes from. And so. It's interesting to me that there you are working in human clay, you're coming out of these Ashkenazi roots, you're manifesting suffering, suffering, and joy in the face of suffering. That's Fiddler on the Roof. That's the Ashkenazi Jewish experience. That's the, that's why we cry when we see that film. Spirit. Uh, yeah, spirit, the indomitable human spirit. Is that not self-actualization? That absolutely is. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what that human spirit for life and for joy and our, I mean, birthright of what it is to be human, to be joyous, dance, celebrate. And that we have love and we have senses to experience our, each other and commune and affect and feed and. Toast and 
celebrate each other. Yes, dance. Laugh. Yeah. Ride horses. Static dance. I mean, the Sufis were, you know, they spun (laughs) to find that ecstatic joy. We danced the horror, you know. The Greek dance on tables. Yeah, dance is is a huge thing. And music, music connects us. Music connects us. That's one thing Sequoia sang. We always knew where he was. He was singing and he would, it was like his little voice. Sequoia and dancing. I mean, he would listen to a Katy Perry song once on YouTube and he knew every word and he would just belt it out. And that's, that was, that's when he's the most joyous is when he's singing. He loves music, loves music. I've got the cutest videos of him, Rachel dancing and yeah, singing, whether it's on top of Old Smokey or, you know, Katy Perry songs or. Is it important to dance? Is it important to dance around your kitchen? It's so important to dance. Oh my, that's what I do with mom when she gets in it. I turn, I turn music on. She loves music and we just dance. We dance. We dance. Yeah. Dancing's awesome. In the that's world, our, the, the, the it, tribal, that's when the dance, there's dance, there's singing. There. Right. It's um, that, that the dancing rituals are, are what are healing. Yeah. There's, there's no place. Moves like. our body, moves our cells, produces the oxytocin. <laughs> you know, it's keeping our joy, moving it through our spines and feeling alive. Feeling. Even when I cry, even when I'm sad, I'm grateful that I feel. That I can feel that deep. I love to sob, to be moved to sobbing, to to just be so deeply moved, whether it be you know in deep sadness or grief or 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 sobbing in joy. Right. I mean, it's it's it, it kind of meets in that place that it's indistinguishable, and that's when we feel our aliveness. So yeah, there's a there's there's a neuroscience to that, of course, which is that hip rocking movement you know dancing sex any any empathetic touch brings oxytocin oxytocin is not just feel good hormone it's communication hormone it's strategy hormone it's where you begin begin to strategize with the other people in your group about how do we get out of this dilemma um how do we figure out the next few years blah 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 without oxytocin our brains can't do that serotonin the same thing produced in the gut through the movement. Um, uh, the endorphins that come, you talk about sobbing. So any sobbing, a good cry brings endorphins, a good meal brings endorphins, lots of hard exercise brings endorphins, another happiness hormone, and then of course dopamine, where you figure it out, the figuring out, the figuring out. Because all of this, you talked about being moved. To do all of these things, you have to move. Would you say that when you feel stuck, and you talked about going deeper, in stuckness, there you are with Sequoia, there you are with your mother's cancer, there you are with your yeah. mother's dementia. Is it the actual physical movement that leads to the emotional movement that leads to the movement that, where you can manifest your way through? To yeah. You? Sometimes I'll just sit on my ball and I'll bounce or I'll stand and just jiggle everything, getting all my cells going and everything just bouncing and moving and livening and awakening and every little cell of my body is happy. You know, it's, it's just, and in, 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 in all the cells is all the information. Oh my God. Our cells, every cell holds the information of 
everything in our body, every function. And it's like just waking all those cells up, get going in community and connection, connection, feeling the connection. Feeling when you have, when, when you're, when you're isolated, I mean, you're there somewhat in isolation in a rural property. It's very beautiful, but it's somewhat in isolation. A lot of people end up isolated because they have the autistic kid that's going to kick off in the supermarkets. So they don't want to go out or they're just so snowed under, overwhelmed with the demands at home that go, how do you keep that connection going when one, when you're in isolation? There's just, I mean, look in the dirt, there's bugs. That's like, we're never alone. We think, you know, I went through one time. I remember it was like a long time ago, beginning of my journey. I think I was in Sedona. Oh, I feel so alone. And it was like, I went out on the rocks and I took my drum and I started drumming. And it was like, I looked down and there's bugs down there and there's clouds up there. And it's like, it's like, it's the illusion of aloneness. It's the illusion of seclusion. It's the illusion of, it's, it's like, try to be alone. You can't be alone. <laughs> there's like, oh, try to be alone. You can't be alone. There's, there's, there's life everywhere. We're sitting on a planet that's connected to everything. And through the mycelium of the earth, we're totally connected. We're not, we, every, all the waters flow together. It's like, we're never, we can't be alone. Even if we want to be alone, we can't be alone. And it's the illusion of aloneness. It's the illusion of the aloneness. Is it allowing yourself to go trans-species? Yeah. Just have to quiet down and be still and present and you start to feel the connections and the communication and you can hear, you know, your horses talking, the dogs and the and birds and the crows. And it's like, it's, yeah. Well, if we can quiet down enough to hear, there's, it's constant communication. It's communing. So movement, movement, but it sounds also like nature, therefore the trans species thing, the connection to the, to the great web. So I guess if you're sitting in a room, not moving, looking at a computer screen and not going outside into it's not planet a good earth. Okay. So those two things, would you say? Go outside, sit on the ground, go outside. Look at the clouds, go outside. You've got to be able to find a leaf or something. There's birds or there's, yeah, get outside, get your feet dirty, touch the earth. Now you're going to, we're going to have some listeners who might feel, I hate going outside. Going outside is mosquitoes. Going outside is getting dirty and gritty. Going outside is, you know. That just sounds like a bunch of hippie BS to me. What's your well, answer to that? Stay stuck. Yeah. Stay stuck, Ben. Go for it. It's your choice. There's a choice. Go get dirty. See what it feels like to be dirty. You may fall in love with the dirt. You know? You may fall in love with the bug. It seems to me very much that in the course of the work that I do, where one's dealing with depression or trauma or something like that. And that what it often seems to come down to for me is sadness, that there's a profound sadness running through our culture, which the more I look at it seems to come from a 
disassociation with the environment that we are pre-programmed as an organism to be in. If you, if you put a goldfish in a bowl, it's going to be a bit depressed. If you, if it's swimming out there in the river, okay, a predator might get it, but nonetheless, it's again, self-actualized or whatever, but we're like zoo animals and even zoos have evolved. Well, and, and they've evolved now. They've got great habitats and, you know, they've learned from the past and now can create happiness for animals and rebreed endangered species that they put back in the wild. But we're not putting ourselves back in the wild, are we? The old messaging, it's like somebody said, oh, don't get dirty. You'll get sick. There's germs or there's, it's the programming. It's like, Fear. you know, or don't do that because you've got to do this and the programming that we're spoon fed that comes down from the grandmas and the grandmas and the grandmas. It's like, who said that? It's like, unsay it. Say something else. Choose something different. It's really interesting. Yesterday I was, I live in Germany, some listeners now, and we drove north to a family reunion in a very rural area of Hessen where we live in Hessen is the area where the Brothers Grimm step stories mostly come from the north part of Hessen. It's a lot of forest and the Little Red Riding Hood comes from they were scary stories. <laughs> they were scary stories. Little Red Riding Hood comes from a, the area around a town called Arlsfeld, which is a very beautiful little Gothic town still today. And you think of it as this girl who was, you know, a bit of a free spirit going through the woods. And of course it's the big bad wolf. Yeah. And it's, it's basically a story about don't, don't be a free spirit. Um, the, the little red riding hood, I didn't realize until yesterday what the, the, it, it's a mistranslation from the German. It's always in caption, little red riding, it's a little red cap. And these little caps oh. that they wore, that they made the girls wear 200 years ago was like this little square red thing fixed on the top of the head with a, it's like, like a bit like a hijab with, with a, mm -hmm. with, with, with all the t hair tied rigidly back and in this top knot on the, with, with this sort of red thing on top and then a hijab basically around the jaws, around the face, basically keeping the jaw shut. So you didn't talk too much wound tight of black material and the women had to walk around like this for their entire life from being a little girl keep their mouth shut keep their mouth shut and you know don't go self-expressed don't go self so weirdly you think you think of okay you know 200 years ago it was so much better you know the world was more natural no. da, 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 da. and then you, you have these stories about don't go touch nature that's the big bad wolf don't go walk through the forest by yourself and Toe the line. Germs. Germs. Yeah. And everybody's got stomach problems. <laughs> From not enough germs. Yeah. It's, From it's, not enough germs. And the stomach problems become brain problems because brain health and gut health are connected, right. obviously. Um, yeah. So when people are stuck, Jill, and they're saying, like, they say, I, I'm in Jill's situation. I'm, I'm stuck looking after a sick relative. I'm stuck looking after a special needs kid, I'm stuck. Give us your one, two, three of unstuck. Go outside and look around. 
just go outside and look around. It's touch the dirt. Sit on the dirt. Notice, listen to a bird. How can you not be joyful listening to a bird? It takes you into the present moment of the chirp. It's like, it's so easy to just go outside. I mean, there's, I mean, we we can see clouds here. It's not smart. I mean, it's just God laying on Lake Austin, you know, it's like just go outside and look at a cloud and everything is just, it expands your awareness. It takes you out of that tight, stuck, trapped place to expansion of what's possible and start to dream yourself awake. So go outside. So move. That's the go outside bit. Move. Move. And then go outside and then Put breathe. your feet on the ground. And your head in the clouds. And the head in the clouds and get bit, expand. Just let yourself dream. What could, you know, how to, you know, to dream. Now what? People are afraid to dream. Who am I to dream? It's, it's like dream. There, nobody, nobody's died from crying. Nobody's, nobody's, it doesn't hurt anything to dream. And you start to dream and you, any things become possible, even if it's one little thing, one little thought. Yeah. When did we, out when of did that we move stuck mental? When did we move away from dreaming as a culture? That's an interesting one, isn't it? That you have big, we have this thing called mythology, right? We have this thing called religion. We have, what are those but dreams? You know, we have this thing called culture. What is culture, but an idea that somebody had and other people had ideas, which meant that it came together for a culture, which those ideas had to be thoughts at some point, which thought is AKA dream. And then you've got no choice about dreaming, right? Anyway, you, your, your brain daydreams, whether you want to or not, of course you dream at night. When did we decide that that was something to put as a, oh, you're a dreamer. You're just a dreamer. When, when did that become a bad right. thing? Right. School, stop daydreaming. Pay attention. It's like, isn't that the, that part of the brain that when we're little to be able to dream in our imagination? to have imagination. It wasn't okay to just space out, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, come back here. Mm -hmm. Stop dreaming. Yeah, in school. In school, stop daydreaming or pay attention. And of course, what was school? School was a way to get people to work in the factories. And exactly. School, right, and where factory. to dream. No yeah. one's going to dream their way into a factory or no one's going to dream their way into being cannon fodder. I mean, no. you, unless you give them shit dreams. I mean, I guess you could argue that the, 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 the young Russians that, you know, sign up for Wagner, private, you know, mercenary company or whatever, have been down such a shit rabbit hole of depression that that's the only dream they can dream to get out of there. But it's complete manipulation. They're being manipulated by men in power to go yeah. die in their tens of thousands on the battlefield. And of course, that's been going on for thousands of years. But it seems to be about social control and manipulation, wouldn't you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because in the old traditions, it's like, you know, I've, I've gone into the Kiva and we dream for like four days. And that's when we let go and, and let our spirits lie in the inner realms and, and get informed of what's possible. And it seems to me that, I mean, you're, you're the living proof of this, that you can, you can have these values movement, nature, go outside, dance around the kitchen, go into, go on a vision quest for four days, be a total hippie and yet still make money, 
and yet still run yeah. a business. It's as if, again, back to where we began, that people think that these two things are somehow mutually exclusive from each other. And what I found, again, through this Live Free Ride Free podcast, but that's partly why I decided to do it, was that most people I know who are the most successful, they dream all the time. And they, they really prioritize it. They, they, they I go. I love my dream time. <laughs> so is, 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 that, is that really the, the key to unstuckness? Is the dreaming. It's a piece of it. It's a big piece of it is to dream and to, and to, and it's that young, that, that young messaging. Sometimes we have to, it's like our parents are done bringing us up. We're 18, 21, we're on our own. And then we get to continue to raise ourselves and give ourselves that positive. You know, like my mother, when I was young, she told me, Jill, you can do and be whatever you want to be. Do. It was like there was no limits. It was like that was the messaging they gave me. I was like, oh, oh, oh. And it's, and, and even if people didn't get that when they were little, they can begin now. We need to then take over our own parenting and continue to raise that stuck inner child, which is, you know, some of the work that I do is going back to the work of the inner child and letting them self-express and get it out and yell and scream and cry and fear and all that and then go in as the parent or have them bring their higher self in to then say well what's possible what qualities do you want to give that little child that they didn't get when they were young and have them receive those qualities to be able to dream and imagine equality and, and release that old wounded part and begin to raise and foster our own woundedness. Um, is our birthright. To dream. Is everybody's, Absolutely. Is, right. Is everybody's birthright to, to actually to live through their imagination? And is the reality of life that you, everyone does actually live through their imagination, whether they think it or not, whether they realize it or not, they, they, they think something up and they go off into that reality. That's creation. That's creativity. An artist creates from something from nothing. Right. Their but imagination. even stuff, even, even, even when one says angst and yeah, my, my life is shit and okay. Express it. Don't let it stay in there, but express it. Express otherwise, it. Let otherwise it get you big. Just... Exaggerate it. And then if you do that, how does that, in the law of attraction, not just make more of it come? You focus on something. You focus on what you want. It's like you go into your heart and go, what do I really want? So many people have no clue what they want. They don't want this, but they, they don't have a clue of what they want. Right. How they want it to be. It's like, you don't like this, but what do you like? And then be in the realm of, oh, this brings me joy. That brings me joy. And then it just, it kind of blossoms and grows and percolates and bubbles up. And then it's like, you go, oh yeah. It's like, yeah, I had a client that was just got back from Greece and they spent five days swimming three miles a day. And I just went, oh my God, I forgot how much I love to swim in the ocean. And it's like, I'm going to go get myself a new wetsuit. And there's a group that swims Sunday mornings and I'm going to start swimming again because I love to be in the ocean. I love to swim. And it was just through that. Oh, yeah, I remember. 
oh, that sounds fun. It's like starting to imagine and then feel and then, oh, yeah, I remember what that feels like to be in the ocean and moving my body and breathing and being in the, you know, with so, feels. And so we talk about dream time. Earlier in this podcast, we talked about that you need to go talk to people in order to find solutions, reach out for help, but also, you know, have conversations. I think you just hit on something. What is a conversation but a shared dream? A shared dream. Absolutely. We share our dreams. And that's something that I would do with a group of people that I was with. We were studying Mayan medicine wheel and the direction. And we would go into the Kiva. We would dream for four days in the wintertime. We'd go in and our dreams would come and then we would share our dreams. And we would inspire each, each other and, and awaken forgot forgotten dreams you know sometimes we have these dreams and then we push them away we forget and then we remind each other of shared dreams and then it all starts to happen it's like oh yeah i had that idea i forgot about and it's the isolation it's just staying in touch is so important it's like staying in touch with people but but touch is so important it's like it's like I can touch somebody and it wakes up memories. Just that touch yeah. and being in touch and connected and having our cells all be touched and then resonated. And then they all remember because I think all our memories are stored in ourselves. Yeah. The water of life. What do we do if we to, to remember to become whole again, to remember? To remember, there's a lot in, you know, there's a lot of bullshit that we don't need to remember, but there are a lot of core things that to remember, <clears throat> to remember what clean, fresh water tastes like and crisp air in our nostrils, to remember those feelings of aliveness. And then when we start to remember, it's like, oh, yeah, and that awakens the desire and, and moves us forward. And then we share it, we talk about it, and then we're community and Let's do this. What do we do? What does somebody do? You talked about touch. So, for example, there's the good and the bad of the social media age. The good of the social media age is, look, here we are. We're talking on Zoom. I'm in Germany. You're in California. Yeah. We're in touch. We're sharing the stream. We're, we're communicating. Mm. Of course, we already know each other. But even if we didn't, we could do this. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know uh, you when I didn't know you. <laughs> right. However, however, you know, the, 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 the not so good side of Social media is staring to a computer all day, not being in physical contact with people, not yeah. being in actual contact with people. Yeah. And one has to find that balance. Okay, fine. Go there get are touched. Some, yeah. So how do you, what do you do if you live a life where you got no one to touch? What do you do to, to, to make sure that that. You touch yourself. Okay. I mean. You can touch we, yourself. We've got ourselves. Right. Touch ourselves. I do self work on myself all the time. What else? Can I'm you always massaging myself and then I'm drinking water, drinking good water, hydrating. That's fluidity movement. We have okay. the fluidity, the water. Okay. And then, then, and then the fluidity is like the emotions start to come up and then the feelings. And then we, and then we have the longing comes to be with other people. And then we reach out, even if it's just talking to somebody or sharing. Your sadness or your stucking, you, you, your, your stuckness, you, you reach out, you talk about it. 
Is this, is this also where the, the, the getting out of one species thing happens to be useful? So for example, let's say you haven't got a human in your life that you can touch. Okay. You can touch yourself. You could also book a massage, but, but you can pet a dog, right? Yeah. And you can put your hand on the earth and you can go and hug a tree. And the, the tree hugging thing is so interesting to me, how people feel so weird about it. And then the science got done on it. And of course, what did they find? But that the electromagnetic um, frequencies being thrown out by large trees, enormous. Uh, Enormous, because those roots go into the earth and the roots touch all the other roots and all the mycelium that spreads over the... And the earth itself made it... And then the communication comes and you start hearing things. Yeah. And it just flat out makes you feel good. You know, I mean, you might feel feels silly, good. you might feel self-conscious, but it feels good. So it, it, it's the idea of touch, the idea of don't, don't limit it to one's own species. No. Think, think about rocks, think about animals, think about plants, yeah. think about yeah. the, the air moving on your skin. Or as you said, the cold water, you know, being in, in the water, whether it's internally moving through your moving in the ocean, that's all touch. And that connects us and then we're connected. Yeah. And then we're not as alone. We're not as secluded. And, um, so there are always solutions. We just have to dream them up. Yeah, we have to be willing to get to be, we have to be willing to go deeper into our stuckness to have it be so stuck that you just can't be stuck anymore. Is that, I mean, it's just. Is that what you find in sort of all, all mythologies, this idea of the journey through the underworld? Mm-hmm. Is that what that is? Yeah, I think so. The mystery, curiosity. You curiosity is curiosity and openness. Because if you're curious, stuckness is contraction and small and tight. And curiosity is like, oh, maybe there is something out there. Oh, maybe there is a possibility of not having to be stuck. The possibility. And what is curiosity, I suppose, but movement? Because the moment you're curious about something, you move towards it. Yeah. You just, you just do, right? Physically, mentally, you emotionally, you move towards it. You can't it. help it. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're hunting out. And that's how children are. They're curious because they're just, everything was new. Mm. And they haven't been programmed yet to don't touch, don't get dirty, don't talk to that person. It's joy, curiosity. I think joy, yeah, it's like a full expression of being alive. Is joy is the expression of aliveness of every little cell. And the curious of not knowing we're stuck. Well, we think we know everything. We're stuck. Being open to the possibility of oh, so we can be stuck without knowing we're stuck. That's yeah. interesting. Oh, so yeah. yeah. So you can know you're stuck. There you are. You're, oh, yeah. you're, 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 you're doing Sequoia 24-7. There you are doing your mother's cancer. There you are. You're doing your mother's dementia. And you say, okay, I'm stuck. I'm actually physically can't mo- leave this property. I'm stuck. No. But you're right, actually. But I can dream. And dream. Can dream. And I can dream what's next. And imagine. Or I could be moving through life, make it, you know, apparently successful, but not really curious about anything and not not developing that's pretty stuck that's, that's stuck a, a different i would stuck. be stuck in my 
that's a different stack. It's a less, it's kind of a covert stackness. That's or, obvious. Yeah. Yeah, just going down those those neural pathways that have just been there forever and you're not even aware there's another track to go down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I was, we need to take wrong turns in life. <laughs> well, absolutely. I was just last night interviewing for the other podcast, which is Equine Assisted World. I was interviewing Dr. Stephen Peters, who's a, a neuroscientist and neurosurgeon who also happens to be a horseman and also happens to be autistic. And he said, Rue, it all comes down to axons and dendrites. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, <laughs> if you're curious, what happens is you reach out and you touch things and you have these sensory experiences, which then inform your brain about what's out there. And that causes your brain to forge new neural pathways, first in big ways that are called axons and then out in little, uh, like branches and then out in little, little twigs which are mm -hmm. the dendrites and that these need to, when they find other dendrites, they fuse with them and they create neural pathways and that you can always create new neural pathways. But if you don't do that, that's basically what depression is. And that's basically, he said, Rupert, it's, it's dendrite. Exactly. And he said, you've got to be your own internal gardener, your own internal forester yeah. to create as many dendrites in your brain as you possibly can. And it was so nice to have it sort of put in those Broken. terms. Okay, yeah. dendrites. Yeah. I'm on it. Let's go get some dendrites. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what John Barnes, my myofascial teacher, he says, you know, it's depression only leads to something happens and then you have a decision, you make a decision about it and then you don't do anything about it. And then everything tightens up and you're stuck. And it's like, just put your hand on somebody and then it's like, create space, do neural pathways, open up, the river can flow, the, the fluid can flow. Right. And so it's. And petting the dog, putting the hand on the earth, hugging the tree, jumping in the water. That, what's that going to do? It causes dendrites in your brain. It's going to create new neural pathways. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And awaken and aliven. And yeah, because depression is stuff. They <laughs> ought to teach us neuroscience in school, shouldn't they? Because if they did, can you imagine if one got these, these, these user manuals to the brain? Uh, you know, these con basic eight, concepts, 10, you know, that one could go on and, and use them. Yeah. Instead yeah. of having to try to prize these, these <laughs> neuroscientists out of their ivory towers to come and talk to us. Right. But, you know, when he said that, it's like, oh, and only if you go to college or university or, yeah. yeah. But anyone could. <laughs> right. Your and, kids yeah. or the littles could do it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, I'd say the, the, the younger the, the kid, the more they get it. Because they're not, you know, you can say that it's a simple. They don't concept. have a ton of belief systems that push it out. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Dendrites. Cool. Dendrites. Dendrites. And Love it. Getting unstuck. Axons, yep. dendrites. Get your ass. And moving. Out. Get your booty. Yep. Get your booty moving. <laughs> All right. Listen. But I need to do. <laughs> yeah, I know. You've been sat here looking at the screen for a while. Well, that, let's begin to wrap up. What are you dreaming? Where are you dreaming yourself to now in this apparent stuckness? Where, 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 uh, where, Joel Cohen? I'm dreaming a future for Sequoia. That's really where my biggest stuckness is. My mom has lived a beautiful life. I'm caring for her. She's, and it's like at some point her journey is going to conclude and I will have time and energy and making good money, I'm saving money, and 
I want to keep having conversations of what's possible for Sequoia and all the kids that are out there on the spectrum, because that's the biggest pain, stuckness that, you know, like my mom said the other day, she was one of her mates. She goes, if I was gone, you'd be totally happy. I said, no, I've got Sequoia. It's like, I'm never going to be happy until I feel that he is living his, he's always going to be autistic. I love that with it. Like when we were in Scotland and being, it was like, it was so much freaking fun being autistic. It's like mm-hmm. so free. It's like, as Skeb says, it's like egoless, like to just be you without any, you know, committee there saying you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the new dream, the dendrites the are new- going to come. The new dendrites yeah. are, are going to come through now dreaming this life for Sequoia. What's that life? So shut your eyes, tell us, let your dendrites fuse and tell us the picture. What does it look like? What's happening in Sequoia's life? And then how do we dream ourselves? I can see him out in nature, being able to wander, being able to sit on the ground, being able to eat from the garden, being able to pick berries, being able to swim in the lake being able to sing at the top of his lungs and feel fully expressed and joyous, to have community around him that loves him and supports him. As part of this dream, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Say what you were going to say. Just to be able to have peace inside of his own body. Because yeah, for the for the for the volume to come down for him, I think the volume's so turned up. Because service is so integral to human happiness and joy. How in this can Sequoia find his way to service to be of service, so that he can find that mature type of fulfillment and happiness? Where do you see him serving? I have to see him out of his stuck. I can see him. <laughs> wow. I had a vision many, many years ago when he was little and projecting out in time. And he came and he goes, Grandma, come. We're going to go into the Kiva now and dream. It's time to go in and dream for people, dream for our community. Like a He's shaman. He's a dreamer. He's a shaman. He's a dreamer. Like an active dreamer to help people dream. Come on, Grandma, it's time for us to go and dream for people. That sounds that sounds achievable. Yeah, it does. That sounds doable. I mean, one can build a kiva. I'll, t- I'll tell you a dream I had. You know, Scub just showed up an hour ago. So, so yeah. I had this. I had this dream when he was about three, and at his most severely autistic. And the dream was, I arrive at this airport and this tall, young, handsome young man comes and picks me up and we get in his car and, that, and uh, he's tall, he's taller than me. I'm looking up at him, carrying my bags, you know, he's being a real young gentleman and we get in his car and then we're driving off to wherever we and it's, it's him. Yeah. And, I, and I remember thinking. I don't know how the fuck I'm going to get to that. That's, That's impossible. But, but it's, it's clear as day. It's in my mind. It's, it's in my dream. 
but I do know that it's the direction in which I want to go. Well, in 2021, 15 years after having had that dream, a waking dream, I arrived at Austin airport. I flew back to Texas. Scub came and picked me up and he was, he was being totally autistic, right? He was, he was there dimming away in the, in the arrivals area, but nonetheless, this tall, taller than me, good looking young man built has shown up to get me. And we go walking out of the airport to his car. It's his car. He's driving. And as I'm putting the bag, well, actually he puts my bags in because he's always a gentleman. And I get in the passenger seat and he starts to back out. And I go, oh, fuck, it happened. This is it. It, it happened. I dreamt it and it happened. And it happened. And then two nights later, we went to see a couple of friends and I said, you know, Scub, I'm going to drink a couple of beers when we go. So will you be all right driving me back? And I thought it was freaking out that we were even having this type of conversation. Yeah. And, and I found myself in the passenger seat again. At night, we're driving, we're come, leaving the pub where we've been. It's raining. So he's driving in the rain in, you know, five lanes of traffic, you know, on the changing lanes on the freeway. And I'm looking at him going, I used to, you used to be nonverbal and incontinent. And here am I now. And tantruming in the back seat. Right. <laughs> I'm the one now nonverbal and incontinent in the end. And we totally shifted rather, you know, so your, your wow. dream that you just articulated for sure is going to happen. Yeah. And maybe it takes a certain frustration of stuckness launching that rocket of desire. But to, for him to be able to be a person that helps other people to dream, that's called coaching. That's life coaching. That's, you know, yeah. and, you know, and there's autistic people out there doing it. You know, Dr. Peter, Steve, Steve Temple Grandin, Rowan, mm -hmm. there's, there's lots of people out there who are pretty severely autistic who go on to have careers. And so let's make that dream happen. Yeah. Let's, let's, He's let's, in there. let's build let's that, that. Let's build that Cuba. I'd love to go dream with Sequoia. The best healer I ever knew in the Kalahari, the Bushman, Besa was the name was, completely autistic, never looked you in the eye, mm -hmm. flapped, rocked, spoken completely to us, but he healed people. You know, people travel yeah. from all that, thousands of miles for healings from him. Why not? It doesn't have to look a certain way. Yeah. That's just, we get stuck. Those dendrites are stuck yeah. and it's like that we think it has to look a certain way. Right. So I'd be very happy to put my dendrites in or uh, for purely selfish reasons. I, I would love to go to that Kiva, you know, <laughs> and dream ourselves awake and dream ourselves yeah. awake. Yeah. 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 Dreams ourselves awake. So we, we dream, dream ourselves, dream ourselves out of stuckness by dreaming ourselves. Awake. Yes. Alive. We dream ourselves alive. And Helen Keller, she says it takes a person who's wide awake to have their dreams come true. We need to be awake. We can't be stuck in those neural pathways and asleep at the wheel. We have to dream ourselves awake to have our dreams come true. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Our heart's desires. Those desires. Yeah, those rockets of desire. And when they're from the heart, they're, yeah. 
And for that, we need to move, connect, dream. Stay grateful, stay grounded, Mm. stay in our hearts, stay present. Get into nature, notice stuff. Be connected beyond Hug a tree, hug each other. Yeah. Yeah. We're hugging and dancing and singing and moving, celebrating in life until life is a celebration and not stop until then. Yeah. What else is there to do? It's true. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Go ride a horse. <laughs> oh, yeah, but that's that's the same thing, just in a different way. Just hugging you with exactly. your legs instead of your, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And your butt. Oh, beautiful. So my dream is to come and ride with you guys. <laughs> And go to Portugal, visit my friends in Portugal. Go, I mean, my dream before the cancer, it was, I was headed to Portugal to go see Sofia, the Valenzas. Yes, those people who don't know the Valenza family in Portugal, the, the Valenza family oh. in Portugal are the, are the apogee of classical dressage alive on the planet. When you enter that stable, it's like you've gone back to the 18th century. But yes, come, come here to Germany along the way. And those are the roots before we got stuck in Odessa and Ukraine and the beginning true. in the 50s. That's true. That's true. I, I want to go home. <laughs> yeah, it's through the Iberian Peninsula. The Well, obviously, it, initially Judea, but that hasn't been home for since the Romans sacked it, you know, in right. 77 AD. Like the Romans. Yeah, well, hey. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Uh, home is where the heart is. Home is where we dream. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So consider that dream done. The 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 invitation Beautiful. is wide open. When you have a chance, hop on a plane, come here. The horses are ready for you. The forest is waiting. But until then, we'll dream. Thank you. Yeah. So normally at the end of one of these podcasts, I give people websites and emails for people to contact. It doesn't sound like that's what we're going to do here, Joel, does it? No. If you find me, find me. It's, you don't have a website, do you? I don't have a website. I don't really have the time to maintain it. And life is flowing. The river, my river is flowing. And I'm working to keep, you know, right. keep everything moving and flowing. Yeah. Your business is entirely word of mouth, I know. Um, but listen, listeners, if you've got a question for Jill, if you're um, in this situation, if you're feeling stuck, for really good reasons, like you actually are stuck physically, you're looking after somebody, you're, you, you can't move from the situation. And you're wondering what to do, and you want to send her a question or benefit from her wisdom, send us an email here. So just write it to info at info at horseboyworld.com, info at horseboyworld.com. Just say, question for Jill. And what we'll do is we'll relay those questions. We'll collate them, collect them, and then we'll get Jill back on and she'll answer them. How about that? Beautiful. All right, Jill. Mm-hmm. It's been a Thank treat. Thank you. It's been. Till next time. Uh, I'm going to go up and have a bit, bit of a drink. You know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to go because it's getting dark here. I'm going to take Rowan. We're going to go down into the creek that's outside the house here and we're going to go look at fireflies while we walk the dog beautiful and And the full moon out go dream
And we will connect. I'll go look at the moon too. Very good. Be in dream time together. All right. Mm. All right. I'll be very interested to you. you. Okay. Love you too. All right. Mm. Till next time. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.